0: Hello, world, and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's interview. Today, we'll be chatting with Dr. Noor Al-Muhtasib, a postdoctoral research fellow at Yale studying cocaine addiction and relapse. She completed her bachelor's in biochemistry, followed by her PhD in pharmacology. You may know her, like I do, from Twitter, where she is incredibly honest and transparent about the ups and downs of academia and scientific research. She's a personal inspiration to me in many ways as a fellow hijabi neuroscientist, and I can't wait to learn more about her. Dr. Al-Muhtasib, what's your story?
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, Of course. I do have, you know, your stereotypical kind of love science forever Mm. story. Um, You know, I went into college did biochemistry because that's the kind of science i liked Mm. but i didn't know what i wanted to do after so i did the thing where you apply to a million jobs and (laughs) you hope you get one call back and i did and i started a job in a pharmacology lab that's when i realized what i loved in science as a kid was pharmacology so as a kid what i really liked was I would you know ask questions like why is this medicine like how is this medicine working why is it helping me feel better or like why does my stomach hurt when I you know have food poisoning or something because like I was a pretty sickly child so Mm -hmm. I got sick a lot (laughs) that's okay (laughs) so those thoughts crossed my head a lot or even you know I would ask a lot of questions of like, what do you think the cat is thinking? Or when they do that action or something to my mom, she would just be like, I I don't know, but okay. (laughs) So sweet though. (laughs) So yeah, I started the pharmacology lab and realized that's what I was interested in. And I just didn't know the name for it. My mom was a physics teacher, but, um, her highest level was. Uh, bachelor's and she had taught in the Middle East. So once she came here, she couldn't really teach because it was a completely different language. So I didn't really have anyone in my family to look up to for advice or anything like that.
0: Did that affect your journey at any point? Do you think that if you had someone that you could look up to, things would have been any different? And if so, what, what do you think would be different?
1: For sure. Um, I think it would have been a lot more helpful to have someone who had already done it that I could turn to and tell me, well, this is how, you know, what you need to apply to. And this is how you need to do it. You know, when you're the first person to do something within your family, you don't have that guidance. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's why we talk about first generation, because it is a little more you finding your own way and pushing yourself to ask for help, Mm -hmm. which can be
0: challenging in some ways, depending on how you grew up. Maybe as a high school student, you were totally fine doing things on your own. For sure. And maybe I know I experienced this where when I was doing my PhD, it was kind of the first time that I really needed a decent amount of help and mm-hmm. so you haven't even exercised that muscle yeah, of yeah. asking and being like, help me.
1: Was that the same for you as well? Yeah, exactly.
0: Mm.
1: You're not used to asking for help. Yeah. You know, it's kind of scary sometimes too, because you don't know exactly who to trust. Yes.
0: Which is such a strange concept, isn't it? Because you'd is. think that within science that everyone's there to help each other out and yes. progress what we know about ourselves and the world around us. But uh, yeah, it's quite unfortunate that. That's not the case. So I know that with COVID, it's this is a, a I know a strange question, but what was a day in the life for you like? You are an electrophysiologist, right? Uh mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was that like pre-COVID, and what is it like <laughs> now? If you can kind of speak to that a little bit.
1: Um. So you know, for pre-COVID, it would vary from a little bit from day to day because some. Not. I wouldn't do an experiment every day just because. Sure electrophysiology experiments are pretty demanding um yeah so you know there would be days where I'd go in make my solutions prep things for experimental days make sure you know everything's clean and ready to go um and you know do surgeries if need be and then you know the day of the experiment I would come in kind of like set up the lab set up all my equipment um Everything's right there when I need it to be. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. Just because we do, we do use animals, and of course we follow all the very specific laws for Mm -hmm. using the animal. But it has to be really quick once the animal comes into play, Mm -hmm. both for humane reasons and for the science reasons. Do you usually do in slice recordings? Yeah, yeah, slice recordings. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. you want to extract the brain and have it in a slicing solution. As quick as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I slice my my brain and I wait for a few hours and then start recording. Um, And I wrap up and then go home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, you know, things work, they work. If they don't, I might wrap it up early. And I don't even say for things work. I don't like that phrase. I'm trying to move away from that phrase.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I was, you know, as you were saying it, I was going to agree. And then I was like, wait, I think we're kind of broken in a way, or the way that we think about science is very much a binary thing. Like it was a good science day or a bad science day.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> it's just, I, I, I don't like that so much because it you know reinforces a certain way of thinking that can start to bleed into other parts of our life and just reinforce other negative ways of thinking absolutely so i yeah well you know when i if my slice is uh if my cells don't look good for recording purposes Mm -hmm. You know, I'll maybe wrap it up because I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to get the data I need from it today. Might as well not expend energy that I can save for later.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. So that's what it's like when you're in the lab fairly consistently. Has anything changed now with the pandemic?
1: Yeah, it's been a little difficult because we do have limited capacity of who's allowed to be in lab. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I was just starting in a new lab. Um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, it's, it's the life for a lot of people. For now, it's been a lot of uh, troubleshooting and setting up things. Um, so it's been a little bit more difficult, and it's not your normal. Like, my schedule a little bit is different every week but i and it varies from day to day but i try to go in and to give a little bit background about electrophysiology because i don't think everyone knows it yes it's it's a technique where you record electrical currents from neurons or brain cells Mm -hmm. um and i particularly use it from brain slices and once you extract brain from an animal you can keep the cells in the brain alive for hours afterwards Mm -hmm. which is the coolest thing ever (laughs) i know it is it's awesome i love it (laughs) um i haven't though recorded from the particular region that i want to record in this lab could you describe a little bit about that
0: project that you're hoping to embark on
1: yeah um so we're focusing in my current lab we're focusing on Well, each person, you know, has their own thing, but uh, I'm looking at cocaine addiction and relapse, Mm -hmm. Um, and the brain region involved is the VTA or Mm -hmm. the ventral tegmental area, Mm -hmm. and it's part of, you know, what you traditionally call the reward system or the reward brain, you know, the reward area, Mm -hmm. and I haven't recorded from there before, and I haven't sliced the brain to get that brain region before <laughs> mm. yeah because the, the VTA is quite posterior yeah
0: yes I'm trying to think <laughs> where what had you been working on before in terms of brain region
1: uh the striatum um ah, which is okay. <laughs> very big first of all yes <laughs> uh, whereas you know you can get the striatum you know depending where you're recording from Mm. or how specific you want to be you can get like 10 slices
0: yeah 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 it's funny that you mentioned that my partner is an electrophysiologist as well and he was studying Parkinson's disease mm-hmm. so they were most often doing their recordings within the dorsolateral striatum yeah yeah. and so yeah he could mess up three slices and still be fine and be able to mm-hmm. complete a full experiment whereas um, I was doing stuff in the hippocampus in the anterior hippocampus so I had I think three slices on a good day Yes. And that was if I was just doing one half. Like if I could select from either hemisphere then obviously we could double that. But yes, I completely understand. And the VTA, yeah, that's going to be interesting though.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the VTA, if you do everything perfectly well, yeah, you will get three full slices. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um and so I no one in the lab had currently done that before, mm. but luckily some awesome people, like Professor Melissa Herman from UNC, mm. she was doing Zoom meetings with me. Oh. She would cut a brain and slice it and vice versa. I would, you know, dissect a brain and slice it and she would watch and kind of tell me if I'm doing it correctly. That's so sweet. I know. (laughs) She kept saying, I wish I could teleport you over here so I could, like, show you in person. Yeah. Because, you know, instead of just being able to do something over a couple days or, you know, a few weeks because someone's there to watch you, I would have to sometimes send an email Mm -hmm. and then come back a few days later and make the change that was said in the email. I share this just because I think a lot of people are struggling right now and might feel like they are. Failing (laughs) Mm -hmm. when it's not failure, I think it's just what life is right now.
0: Yeah. How did you feel when the pandemic first started? Was there a moment where you thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this postdoc that I just started?
1: Yeah. um, It's hard to describe because I think I also have a grant. So there was this feeling of I need to do things because I have a grant to um, report to. Mm. and I I just remember because I was not feeling well it it just happened to get like a cold like a normal cold and I was out for a few days and then that's when we went into lockdown (laughs) oh wow yeah we well they decided to go into lockdown the next week and my my mentor was like there's no point of you coming back Just stay home, which is I (laughs) appreciated. Yeah, and that's when my sister and family called because they live in California, and they were like, "If your lab is closed for you know the next two months at least, why don't you come out and stay with us?" And I have three kids; you can help me with my kids. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, there was there really wasn't a lot to do, and any anything I could do, I could just do there. So I ended up going and staying with them. That's awesome. Yeah. There was some kind of benefit of being able to just pack up my stuff. I took my cat and went to California and stayed there for a while until they decided to open up labs again. It kind of worked out for me because I was able to be with family, help my sister, teaching my eldest niece math. And really appreciated a little bit of what it meant to be a parent during the pandemic, which was very difficult. <laughs> mm,
0: right. And how old
1: are your nieces and nephews? Ah, uh, seven, four, and one. Oh wow! They're all a year <laughs> older now, but yeah. <laughs> oh my God! God bless your sister. <laughs> I know. I yeah. She works a full ta- full time job, so I'm glad I was able to help and like cook and clean. I really. Don't know how parents do it between work and just kids. Because, you know, they they need constant attention Mm -hmm. when they are around. You know, they need snack breaks. And... (laughs) they just if they don't under like you have to remind yourself of like basic math that you don't use anymore but it was like the number line and you're like i know this it's in here somewhere (laughs) you just have to sift through years of information to get there i know um but yeah i just wish they were you know closer that i could help out a little more Mm.
0: I I mean, yeah, at this point, kudos to all the parents and parent-like individuals who have been looking after so many people. I'm hoping that they are able to find their supportive community because I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. How do you build your supportive community, especially as a trainee where working long hours is kind of expected, unfortunately? And I don't know, it's not the the best place to be in if mental health is really important Mm -hmm. to you and it is to me. So, yeah, how do you go about creating a supportive community?
1: I think especially for postdocs, it becomes a little more difficult because, Mm -hmm. you know, not that it's not difficult for grad students. But as a postdoc, you don't come in with a cohort. Yeah. You often just come in by yourself and you are starting at a different time. It's not like everyone starts at the same time. So I'm a little more of a social person, so I would ask lab mates to go out to lunch or dinner. But also, you know, there are postdoc associations sometimes, Mm. and they host events and things that you can be part of. For me, it was just going to those events, asking people to hang out, and then slowly we're telling you kind of the neurons that fire together, wire together. (laughs) <laughs> yes, you know, you kind of get a sense of the people that like you get along with, and you start to hang out with more, and you realize that those are your people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find so- that's something that's helpful to help building a community in each lab I've been in. Okay,
0: I'm curious about what role you think your background played into who you are today. That's kind of a new question that I've started asking guests this year because you know, all of the people that I speak to are often very, very different Mm -hmm. and have different homes that they grew up in. I was born and raised in the States, but moved around a lot. So I think I kind of picked up different things from the different places that I lived in. How about you? What was your family home like and how did it kind of bleed into who you are as a person and who you are as a scientist?
1: A lot of different things affected me. Mm. Um, I grew up in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, Mm -hmm. particularly like Peachy County area, Uh which was a lot more diverse than other places in America, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to put it kindly. (laughs) Um, But I was lucky enough to have that exposure because of where I grew up. And I think that shaped me a lot. I think I'm really appreciative of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And like having gone to elementary school, middle school, high school in areas that were, you know, not homogenous allowed me to have different friend groups and exposed me to a lot of things that I think maybe people were not exposed to until older. And I think having parents who are immigrants who have had to work really hard to establish themselves Also gives one side of me, but also knowing where they came from, what their family has had to endure or is enduring currently, makes me think more about injustices that are out there. Where
0: are your extended family members right now?
1: My mom's family is in Syria, um, Mm -hmm. and most of my dad's in Jordan. How often do they get to go back to their respective homes? Uh, Last time my mom went was before the war, like right when the war started. Mm. and hasn't been able to go back since. Mm. With my dad, it's been a while since he's been to Jordan and even longer since he's been to Palestine. Mm. Just because it's very hard to go to Palestine.
0: I'm obviously fairly well-versed in... The history of that area and all of the horrible, horrible things that are taking place there. So I, I, I don't want to also re-traumatize you in any no, way. In no, 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 it's fine. I, it's a sensitive topic, though, so I do want to recognize that as well.
1: No, no, it's fine. It's just that um, we if you, if you try to go in as an American citizen, mm-hmm. but your last name is Palestinian, mm-hmm. you are forced to go in as a Palestinian you're made to make a Palestinian ID card.
0: Right.
1: Which is fine. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm Palestinian in origin, but once you go in under a Palestinian ID card, you lose all your rights as an American, and yeah. America will not take care of you if anything happens to you. Mm. Um, so that's why it's tricky when you are Palestinian trying to go to, like a Palestinian origin going to Palestine.
0: mm I'm wondering, because you're now, I guess, based in Connecticut, right? Yeah. The surroundings are very different, I would imagine.
1: Yes, within the university.
0: <laughs> yes. Is there a bit of a, a cultural shift that you feel you needed to undergo to, to f- not fit into that society, but just, you know, re yourself?
1: It definitely got less and less diverse the more I got away from PG County. So that was... I guess shocking (laughs) Um, because it's not what I was comfortable with Mm. and that's what I meant within the university because like within New Haven if you go more into the city it's it's not like what the university looks like Mm. Um, it's a a lot different. I I think people kind of flock towards each other minoritized groups find each other When you are a minoritized group or part of a minoritized group, you feel a little uncomfortable when you are in what is thought to be the majority. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe you were talking about this previously, but whether I'm seen as a person of color Mm -hmm. or as white. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people do classify me as white. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) How do you
0: classify yourself, though? Because I I think I... I prefer to base it off of the person themselves. I mean, obviously, external factors do, no pun intended, color the way that <laughs> one might receive you or the way you walk into the world. But how do you perceive yourself?
1: See, it's it's so hard to answer because my skin color is white. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if you looked at me, just at like a part of my skin, you would say I'm white. But if I am generalizing... In a majority white situation as opposed to majority people of color situation you know with my scarf with my name i'm definitely not seen as white so it's kind of not fitting into both in a way Mm. a lot of people will say well you know arabs thought to be classified as white you know under the census bureau which is true but i think a lot of that was hey if we are able to check white maybe they'll treat us better Mm. which clearly didn't work out (laughs) (laughs) and another thing is i think i don't know if a lot of people forget that like arab countries were colonized Mm -hmm. for a long time part of colonization had a lot of colorism in it Mm -hmm. and that definitely affected how people saw themselves But yeah, that's a whole different thing.
0: I know, but it's such an interesting conversation because, especially as of the last, I don't know, eight months or 10 months or so, so many people are having Mm -hmm. more public conversations about race and how people identify. Mm -hmm. So to kind of switch back into academics Mm -hmm. just a tiny bit. Because you were talking about minoritization and obviously, you know, recognizing yourself as a min- uh, someone who is in a- from a minoritized group. What can senior members of academia and academic research do to be better allies to us, to people who belong to minoritized groups?
1: One thing is nominate people for awards. We know that people from minoritized groups more than qualify for a lot of these awards but are often forgotten or just overlooked because they're not part of that old boys network or whatever it's called. Mm. So something practice like nominate people for awards, take on mentees, introduce Mm. them to people so that a become part of that network. I think that's how we, these are like small, in my opinion, small practical ways that we can make changes. Like just listen to people when they tell you Mm -hmm. they have an issue. If there's a problem with a certain PI or a mentor, don't give them tenure. It's just that easy. But um, mentorship isn't really considered for tenure, Mm -hmm. which is just mind blowing to me. You know, for example, for me, when I was leaving my old lab, which was just like a really bad situation, I needed to find a new lab. Um, And it was scary because it was like, I need to email these people and tell them, don't contact my parent person because I can't have him know that I'm finding a new lab. But what happened is I had professors who knew I was, I left. What they did was like, we will contact professors on your behalf. And tell them we have a postdoc that's looking for a lab and and we can vouch for them. They're good. Can we connect you? But these are the circumstances. Yeah. Like that's something you can do, for example. Mm -hmm. Another was, you know, they contact, like I had a grant and I was like worried about how I could transfer it. They contacted Mm. the training officers themselves and were like, tell me how we can do, what we can do to help this postdoc. Like this is stuff that I maybe could have done by myself, but having advocates that were fighting for me who had more of a you know advanced position who had those connections i mean they knew they knew most of these yeah. people, so they were able to like say something, whereas I was this random stranger to them mm. So that's what you can do. Yeah. Advocate for people.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I 100% co-sign on that. That is so true. I think making sure that your eyes are not only on what you can get out of a person, but you can actually Mm -hmm. help them step to the next stone that they need to get to. I didn't know that you went through a bit of a a difficult time. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that, of course. Are you in a, you're in a much better situation now, Yes, yes, for sure. I was
1: able to get into a better lab. Good. I'm so happy to hear that.
0: (laughs) What did you do during that time to make sure that you were taking care of your mental health?
1: When I was in the lab or in a transition period? When you were, you know, trying to find
0: a way out when things didn't look too great.
1: I reached out to a professor who I knew cared about postdocs. Um, or at least said he cared Mm. and so i reached out to him and i also went to the ombudsperson who was like that's the person you know you can talk to that's supposed Mm to uh, advocate on your behalf to the university Mm -hmm. you know obviously i had my therapist and stuff but i on the more actionable path i reached out to people who can do stuff to help me. You know, at first they were just like, Go into lab, do this, try this and, you know, at this by the time I went to them, things weren't were not good at all. That's when I was just like, for my mental health, it will not be good for me to go in and Mm -hmm. they wrote in writing that they are advising me to not go in, which was important for me to have in writing. Having things in writing is important. (laughs) Um, it's like my sister tool. Just because, like, you know, you you know that you aren't doing well or your mental health isn't doing well, but you kind of push yourself sometimes. But sometimes you need someone to tell you, no, you can't push yourself past this. This is it. And luckily, I had someone who was there to tell me that. Having, I think, good people around you, having a good community that is willing to be there for you is so vital. Have you thought about what you would do differently
0: if you knew at the start of your professional journey what you know now?
1: Ask for more help Mm. starting early on, whether it means asking people, more people to read my grants that I'm writing to submit or just asking Mm. for advice. I would make more mentors. I don't think your PI should be your only mentor. Mm -hmm. That's nothing against the PI. I, my PI tells me to make mentors all the time because he strongly believes that it's important to have multiple mentors because, you know, each one will give you a different aspect mm-hmm. of how to grow and each one will kind of nurture you in different ways and just advocate for yourself. That kind of goes back to, I think I mentioned it, like the awards a little bit. Towards the end of my PhD, I was telling people to not, asking people to nominate me for awards. Mm. And it wasn't like, it's not an ego thing of like, oh, I, think I deserve every award but it was more like I know I am just as qualified as everyone else yeah so I'm gonna just ask you hey you know if you think I'm qualified I would like you to nominate me for this award and you know if someone thinks you're qualified they'll be like yeah of course Mm -hmm. and if they don't they won't nominate you and that's it
0: yeah but it doesn't hurt to ask at all exactly well, I have one last question for you. I was okay. hoping to release this for Brain Awareness Week. I've partnered with the Dana Foundation, and I was wondering if you would like to share a fun fact about the brain, something that still makes you go, oh, that's so cool.
1: Let's see. Oh, God, I love the brain. Why isn't one coming faster <laughs> to me? I guess the two things that I do find really cool is that – um how easily the brain gets confused. (laughs) (laughs) Like when you have, you know, when you hit yourself sometimes or you like bump your foot, Mm -hmm. you like rub that area Mm -hmm. um, and it helps. And it's because like the pain signals and the touch signals or the nerves are very close to each other. Mm -hmm. When you touch it, it confuses the brain in so many words. So you don't feel the pain as much. I also find it really cool that if a person is pregnant and they have a stroke or something, that the baby will shed stem cells to the area to help protect it.
0: That is
1: amazing. Yes. I'd I'd never heard that one before. It's really awesome that it's a little bit selfish on the baby's side because the baby's like, you're carrying me. (laughs) It's like, you need to protect me. (laughs) Thank you so much
0: for joining us for this episode made especially for Brain Awareness Week in partnership with the Dana Foundation.